Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. As always, I hope you had a great week. And you can always find Let's Talk Micro on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, TuneIn Radio, Good Pods, whatever you listen to podcasts, you can find Let's Talk Micro. As far as social media, I am on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube as Let's Talk Micro. I am on X as Let's Talk Micro 1 and on LinkedIn as Luis Plaza. I also have an email where you can direct any feedback, any questions, any suggestions, which is letstalkmicro at outlook.com. So please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, download episodes, and leave a review if the app allows you to do so. As always, any feedback, any suggestions, they are always welcome and appreciated, and thank you for the support. And as I am recording this, you know, I just came back from the Clinical Virology Symposium from the American Society for Microbiology that took place from September 9th through the 12th on West Palm Beach. And it was a great event. I mean, it was my first time attending it. Uh, It was definitely smaller than Microbe. I mean, I I didn't know what to expect because I, I hadn't been there before. But overall, it was a great experience. So it was more concentrated on attending, you know, attending the the talks and and connecting with vendors and and connecting with other people in the field. So shout out to Dr. Benjamin Pinsky and other organizers of the event. As always, you know, in this type of events, it is always great when I see podcast guests and I I connect with fellow microbiologists. So I I got a chance to see some some people that I had interactions with before. So Thank you, everyone, those of you that, you know, I got to spend some time with you and, and you know, and connect, and it was, it was a great experience. So I'm very thankful for that. And like I said before, I am I'm planning on doing a short episode about my experience there, and that's just, you know, stay tuned for that. But overall, a great experience. And if you haven't listened to the previous episode, please go ahead and do so. It is part one of a two-part series with guests Dr. Ryan Relich from the Indiana University School of Medicine and Dr. Benjamin Pinsky from the Stanford University School of Medicine, two accomplished virologists, you know, very knowledgeable and very passionate. So it was just like listening to a, an awesome lecture where they go back and forth and, you know, their, their, their passion is so great. I always love that when I listen to people that are very passionate about what they do. So it made it such an interesting episode. So on this first part that was published last week, you know, they they start talking about viruses, you know, emerging viruses, and they start breaking it down, you know, what type of viruses like DNA, RNA, they talk about diseases, they talk about treatment. So it was a very educational, very informative episode. So please check it out if you haven't already. So today's episode is part two. So the conclusion of that great talk that I had with with uh, Ben and Ryan. And in this one, you know, they, they focus more on, on diagnosing, you know, on diagnostics, and they talk about testing for these viruses. And they also talk about some of the challenges when you're developing tests, right? Like uh, acquiring samples and things like that. So definitely uh, tune in and check it out. And like I said before, if you haven't checked out the first one, go ahead and do so. But, you know, great information and, and at some point in time, you know, we'll definitely have both of them on. You know, like I said, they, they know so much and, and they like sharing information. So definitely stay tuned for future episodes where they come back as guests. And 
you're going to hear that, like, like I mentioned on the previous episode, so the, the Clinical Virology Symposium passed already, but uh, Dr. Benjamin Pinsky said that you know, there's an arvovirus workshop that's upcoming in December, and I have included the link in the show notes, so check it out if it's something that interests you. So let's go ahead and listen to it. One thing we haven't talked about, and maybe both Ryan and I can tackle this, is how we diagnose these infections. Um, and that's a really important aspect of this. And that's what we do on a, on a day-to-day basis is make sure that the common thing, the common viruses we are able to diagnose, but then also, you know, how do we make sure that when something spills over, when there is a human outbreak of these new emerging infections, how are we able to identify those patients? And that's a huge challenge. Um, and a lot of it relies on having very strong um, public health and epidemiologic uh, surveillance for the emergence of new pathogens and new you know, foci of folks with new signs and symptoms that are not explained by currently circulating viruses. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it seems like these infections uh, arise in places where perhaps the public health infrastructure is not as strong as, as uh, it perhaps could be uh, for all sorts of reasons. Um, investment in low resource settings um, by high resource countries, uh, the, primary, the primary reason. But this is a, hu- this is a huge challenge. Um, and once these outbreaks are identified, then you have to identify the pathogen. Um, we have those tools uh, currently, um, and even more so now after the COVID uh, pandemic, uh, we have the ability to sequence um, pathogens um, either through metagenomics, where we sequence everything in a clinical sample and identify uh, with bioinformatic techniques new pathogens, or via things like like Ryan's really good at, you know, culturing these isolates, which actually has frequently been the way that new uh, pathogens are identified. Um, even even in the even in the modern era, uh, this is how this is how it's frequently these new viruses are frequently identified. They're thought to be something else uh, sometimes. Absolutely. And you know, cultivation based techniques are you know, many have written them off as sort of historical relics that still adorn the hallways of some public health lab and reference labs. But, you know, cultivation-based diagnosis, um, although rare these days, still has its places. And um, it's especially important for procurement of viral isolates to do further research. Um, You know, all studies that are required to assess the efficacy of antiviral countermeasures, whether they be therapeutics or preventive things like vaccines, you need to challenge um, either cells in it, well, cells in a dish as well as, you know, animals and so on and so forth. Um, And all of that requires virus grown in culture. Um, You know, even enrichment uh, prior to doing um, sequencing um, you know, if you increase the biological burden of virus within the sample, um, you know, you have a better chance of your, your sequencing to turn out nicer sooner. Um, not to say, though, that that doesn't carry some inherent risk with it, because, you know, we had just mentioned that the the quasi-species comp, uh, component of RNA viruses. So you're getting a number of 
of viral genotypes uh, that may differ just slightly. You know, there may be this pool of variants and, um, you know, so you're, you're getting, you're generating a lot more of those by growing the viruses in culture. So um, in order to create uh, virus isolates that um, are fairly uh, closest to what you might see within a person, um, we only culture them maybe a couple of times. We we grow up large volumes uh, of just one or two passages from the ice, ice primary isolation, so that you don't artifactually introduce, you know, adaptive mutations from the monkey cells or whatever that you're using to cultivate the virus. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah that's regard- a really that's a really important important point, certainly for. Um, all the all the downstream things that you're talking about, you want to make sure that the virus you're looking at is the virus that is the one that's causing problems in the human, not the one that's been adapted to the various cell culture lines that are being used. And certainly we've been asked to sequence all sorts of COVID-2 isolates that have been passaged to make sure that uh, they're still representative of the variant that they put in rather than picking up various mutations that may impact the interpretation of the uh, experiments that are being done. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the big biases that has been introduced as a consequence of exactly just that, a lot of people are betting their SARS-CoV-2 data on viruses that have been serially subpassaged. Um, and, you know, they're writing papers about pathogenicity and virulence and other things using, you know, for lack of a better word, attenuated virus isolates. Um, so SARS-CoV-2 has this um, furin cleavage site that links the S1 and the S2 domains of the spike like a protein. Well, after just maybe one passage um, in Vero cells, you start to lose that in quite significantly. So, after purification of a virus isolate, after three passages in Vero cells, what you're left with is the vast majority of the progeny particles no longer possess that furin cleavage site. And so, if that furin, furin cleavage site um, contributes to the pathogenicity or virulence of that virus, then, you know, what you're using for your experimental model, in my opinion, is no longer relevant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I, well, I mean, obviously we're in agreement, but there, there's still a huge role that, um, culture, uh, the ability to culture and specifically the ability to culture organisms that require higher levels of biosafety, uh, this is uh, important in uh, the response to emerging infections because it allows all the things that Ryan is talking about. Um, it allows you to get accurate sequence. Um, it allows the isolation, the isolates to be used in many, many downstream applications. Um, that's important to our understanding of these infections and also our uh, clinical response. And then the other part of this is like, once you have that sequence, you have to make a diagnostic test. Um, And many of these infections, it's a nucleic acid amplification test, usually PCR, but not necessarily. Um, But designing those and implementing them, as we've learned from every single outbreak over the last several decades, is not trivial. Um, And rolling this out, this sort of testing out so that all the patients that uh, need to be evaluated for infection with these agents um, is is not is also not a trivial task. Um, so that that's um, I guess that's where Ryan and I come in. Also, is that we have to help uh, 
help with that. And certainly, you know, there's roles that uh, public health is critically important in that, as well as uh, diagnostic manufacturers, because there's no way that clinical labs can, or public health labs can sustain testing over the course of, you know, if something does become a pandemic, you know, we're not manufacturers, we can't test at that scale without help. Ben and I, at the beginning of the, uh, well, it was, I guess, more like midway through the summer last year, um, you know, he and I were among the few labs out there that had, number one, the ability to culture monkeypox virus to create reagents that we need to develop diagnostic tests. Um, and so Ben and I worked together. Um, you know, he supplied me with a sample from his laboratory that I took into BSL-3. I cultured, a, you know, I grew up a bunch of monkeypox virus, was able to inactivate it, purify the nucleic acid, and then provide that to other laboratories that needed material um, for assay development, validation, and implementation purposes. So, you know, I was able to procure a bunch of isolates from domestic uh, patients here in Indiana as well. Um, you know, Ben and I have plans for some of those other viruses in the future too. You know, I think he and I want to be, you know, at the front line for our, our brothers and sisters at arms um, in the diagnostics field and be able to at least provide on a smaller scale access to the reagents that are necessary to develop these tests. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it's it's important that there are laboratories uh, like Ryan's that can isolate these viruses um, and make up these materials that can be used for further analytical validation of these of these tests. There's not a lot of, of testing like that, is there? I mean, when it comes to those viruses and... Um, the testing for esoteric viruses is fairly limited. Um, you know, it's relegated to large public health laboratories like Centers for Disease Control and WHO reference laboratories around the world. Um, but uh, for the most part, a lot of the emerging viruses, most clinical labs can't get their hands on the tests. And even if they had the tests available, how would you validate, you know, um, something like that? A laboratory developed test for Marburg virus, for example, where do you get material other than perhaps, you know, synthetic nucleic acids that you could spike into clinical specimens? That's all well and good, but regulations require that we do our best to secure, you know, actual clinical specimens. And I don't know about you, but I don't have any blood or <laughs> urine or anything from somebody with Ebola or Marburg in the freezer. <laughs> yeah. And probably, you know, probably all um, clinical labs or even academic medical centers, you know, don't need to have uh, an Ebola or Marburg test on standby. You know, it's, it's an un unlikely to occur, but it's when it's when these things do occur that we need to have a response that is, timely um, and gets all these different stakeholders together and uh, able to respond and develop these tests and distribute them and implement them in a in a fashion that allows the best possible care of the patients. Um, you know, and this in the past hasn't happened, but hopefully in the future, what we learned from COVID-2 will be applied to, you know, subsequent outbreaks and I think there were signs of this for the MPOX story, at least in the United States, and that 
Um, you know, more labs were able to get tests up and running. The requirements by FDA were were less onerous. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, the response was relatively quick um, compared to what occurred with SARS-CoV-2. So certainly progress has been made and we just got to keep building, uh, building on that. The one, the one concern is that as, you know, nobody wants to th even think about COVID-2 anymore, <laughs> anymore. And, you know, as these things fade into the past, there has always been uh, these cycles of interest and then complete lack of interest, which then results in lack of funding, support, and so forth for all of the infrastructure that's needed to monitor for these emerging infections. And so, Hopefully we won't lose that because it is inevitable, I think, that these emerging infections will cross over into humans. And, um, you know, we don't necessarily know which one it's going to be. <laughs> we have our we have our hypotheses, but we're we're likely to be wrong. And so um, we have to be ready with the infrastructure that when one does come in and we're able to identify it, that we can then roll out all the testing so that um, we can limit the damage to, to people. Yes. Definitely. So that was my soapbox for now. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's it's, it's great. I've been, man, like I've been listening here and I'm very engaged. It's just, you know, this is definitely a great, um, you were mentioning that I know that, uh, Dr. Relich, you mentioned, uh, uh, a virus that you have, and this is kind of for me to look it up later and do a little more research, and then whoever in the audience wants to do it as well. Whitewater Arroyo. Whitewater Arroyo, okay. Yeah, I believe it's named after a state park in New Mexico. Um, yeah, it's a Mamarina virus. Um, so the arena viruses underwent some nomenclatural revision. Um, you know, yeah, arena don't, viruses don't get into the taxonomy. Too. I'm not going to get into taxonomy. <laughs> we'll get worry. like we'll get hate emails. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I'll stay away from that. But at any rate, yeah, there's an arena virus uh, called whitewater arroyo that's uh, found here in the United States that was associated with three cases with 100% case fatality. Um, and uh, you know, in in each of those cases, whitewater arroyo virus was discovered in you know clinical specimens from the patients and. Um, at least two of them died with hemorrhagic fever. Uh, so that's, you know, some of these viruses are in our backyard. Uh, two viruses that I study are, one is definitely found in the state of Indiana. It's called Heartland virus. And the other is probably here. It's called Bourbon virus. Um, I really like tick-borne viruses quite a bit. Um, and so that's one of the areas that my research lab studies is you know, sort of the biology and ecology of heartland and bourbon virus and i could probably go into the woods um you know down the road from my house and find infected vectors if i looked hard enough and if i remember the heartland virus story correctly it was the first patient was initially thought to have ehrlichiosis and That's the right. virus itself was cultured yep because uh, they were looking for ehrlichia and it was cultured yep. in the mammalian cell line and it, lo and behold there was viral cytopathic effect yeah. Incidentally, around the same time, um, a virus emerged in Asia and parts of Eastern Asia. It's called SFTSV or severe fever with thrombocytopenia syndrome virus. 
Um, that's another tick-borne Fenui virus that's very closely related to Heartland virus. Um, it appears to be spread by what's called the Asian longhorn tick or Haemophysalis longicornis. Um, and incidentally, that same tick is now an invasive species in the United States, but none of the longhorn ticks that um, we find here on stateside um, have been shown to be infected with SFTSV. But yeah, those viruses emerged around the same time as one another, and bourbon virus came a little bit later, um, and that virus was um, isolated from patients that lived in Bourbon County, Kansas. Um, it's got nothing to do with, you know, the viruses being found in bourbon distilleries or anything, um, and everything to do with their, you know, geographic yeah. site of detection let's from make let's Kansas. make that let's make that clear because maybe there'll be some sponsorship from one of the bourbon yeah companies. exactly <laughs> <laughs> not virus related not virus related nothing to do with the <laughs> nothing to do with the beverages uh, you know um with regard to naming viruses you know, people always ask about that a lot of them have geographic names or they're named after people but um, in 2015, the WHO um, has, you know, tried to put the kibosh on that um, for a couple of reasons, chief among which is the fact that naming viruses after places and people doesn't do a whole lot of good for the places and people after whom or after which those viruses are named. Um, you know, people become very suspicious of those areas. You know, oh, my goodness, it's Ryan Relich virus. Don't go anywhere near that person. Um, you know, but, <laughs> you know, so there's stigma that's associated with it, which is why we have names like severe fever with thrombocytopenia syndrome virus and, you know, SARS-CoV-2, rather than calling it, you know, after the place where those viruses were originally described. Yeah. Although JC still has the guy's name associated with it. I it wonder when that's sure does. Change. No, I think it's going to be difficult to go back and revise all of those names. I mean, Ebola virus is named after the Ebola River in northern DRC. Uh, Marburg virus is named after Marburg, Germany. You know, a lot of these high-consequence virus names that everybody's read about, you know, either in a in a fiction or a nonfiction or a mostly nonfiction book, um, you know, they, they come with names from wherever they were originally described. You know, as we're talking about this, so we also uh, talk about, you know, outbreaks and we see a lot of information out there. And so it's good, right, to talk about it in a responsible manner. And so so as far as, you know, what what viruses are we seeing in, in, in outbreaks? And, uh, you know, typically when we think about them in the public, you know, we think about, right, where are they taking place? You know, what's causing it? Are, is it under control? Is it on the increase? And so what what viruses are we seeing on outbreaks lately? I'm going to answer on behalf of both me and Ben when I say dengue virus. That's one right now that seems to be absolutely everywhere. Lots and lots and lots of headlines about unprecedented outbreaks of dengue fever throughout Asia and Latin America. Yeah, absolutely. So dengue is a huge, huge problem. And there seems to be a post-pandemic increase in the number of cases um yeah so dengue um is is a really important virus and even i mean has been important for decades now um a virus that um there are no therapies um there is a vaccine that doesn't work particularly well um and requires that someone be uh 
infected at least once before they get the vaccine. Uh, so there's a lot of work to do there, but a lot of interest now. So hopefully there will be um, hopefully there will be some progress there. And actually, we're putting to I'm on a I'm on a committee that is putting together a, a symposium on emerging arboviruses, so viruses transmitted by arthropods like mosquitoes and ticks. Um, and so that that's going to be um, this um, December. Uh, through the National Academies of uh, Sciences and uh, National Academy of Science and Medicine. Um, sorry, Science, Engineering and Medicine, if I get that correctly, uh, correct. So that should be really interesting because I think it's not only dengue, but you know any of these viruses that are transmitted by arthropods, the, the problem is that with our climate change that the, uh, the vectors are spreading, they're essentially everywhere. Um, and this allows us to come into contact with these vectors. So it's a, it's a really interesting and concerning area. Most definitely. Um, the other viruses, you know, there's a lot of concern over the past several years about avian influenza. I think Ryan mentioned them or mentioned those earlier, but there's a particular clade 2344B, uh, that has spread throughout the world um, and has caused the deaths of tens of millions of birds, both um, wild birds and um, farm poultry. So fortunately there have not has not been very many uh, cases in humans, but this is certainly uh, something that folks are watching closely. Yeah, and we're even seeing viruses crop up in quote, new places. Um, for example, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever virus, CCHFV. Um, yeah, that's a tick-borne virus. Um, hyaloma ticks or camel ticks are associated with its transmission. Um, and in the past couple of decades, we've seen new foci of infection um, emerge in Spain. Um, you know, uh, Eastern Europe has a long history, I think, with CCHFV, but it's not really hasn't really been until the 21st century that we saw the emergence of CCHFV in Western Europe, which is scary. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. Uh, the vectors are spreading and the viruses associated with them are also spreading. And so this is something that, um, you know, is going to continue to occur as the ecology of these organisms change. Yep. And some of them, you know, we don't have any good control strategies at the moment. Um, you know, we can do our best to avoid the vectors of them or change our lifestyle a little bit, but not everybody follows the rules. You know, some people don't believe in the science. You know, there's nothing to not believe in because it's a fact. Um, you know, you can believe or disbelieve all you want, but that doesn't change the, the facts. Um, and so you really need everybody to participate and um so you know as 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 a function of that you know we we see these hot spots crop up every once in a while it's people doing things perhaps they shouldn't be doing like with nipah virus in bangladesh and india um you know harvesting date palm sap that's not boiled or you know heated in some way to destroy the virus um you know those people will go door to door selling their date palm sap um, that's potentially contaminated with teropid bat excretions containing Nipah virus. And so, you know, the, you then create an outbreak 
Um, however, you know, safe food handling practices, you know, cooking the date palm sap prior to consumption would do a lot for public health, but it, you know, it's just, that's not done. You know, maybe it ruins the flavor. I don't know. I've never tasted date palm sap that I know of. And, you know, maybe raw is better than cooked, you know, but it, it's sort of the same logic with pasteurization, right? I mean, you know, with pasteurization, you see many fewer cases of bovine tuberculosis and brucellosis and other things that can be transmitted in uh, the milk of cloven hoofed animals. Yeah, Nipah is a really good example. And that's one that you and I have talked about as being one that we're concerned may spill over into humans even more so than it already does. It just it's a scary infection uh, results in uh, in many cases fatal encephalitis. So that that's one where that there is concern that it be, could become more transmissible and therefore cause greater outbreaks, and that could be devastating. Um, you were so you were you mentioned uh, that there's going to be a symposium. Uh, Dr. Pinsky's out for the arboviruses. Yeah, it's um, uh, I can send you afterwards the dates and maybe you can put it linked with this. Um, it's being organized right now. I believe it's the second week of um, of December of this year. Um, but the, it, it's currently being organized where we're inviting speakers um, and uh, it should be really interesting. OK, so, yeah, definitely. And and as the you know, listeners, if you're. I will once I get the information, I will put it on the show notes or um, as it gets updated, I will put it on social media as well. And if that's something that interests you, uh, that way you can look it over. Yeah, great. that's awesome. Yeah. And you saw there's also the you said in August, there's. Oh, yeah. In in September, there's the Cl clinical virology symposium um, that takes place in West Palm Beach, Florida. Um, registration is still open. Um, this is the main clinical virology meeting in the United States. Um, typically have about 800 to 1,000 people interested in virology, and it's all aspects of clinical virology. Uh, one of the sessions, like I mentioned, is what um, Ryan and I do is uh, clinical virology jeopardy, which is always a lot of fun. Um, there's uh, uh, a session on case reports. Uh, there's a whole practical session about di diagnostics, um, also uh, epidemiology and uh, therapeutics. So everything is really covered. Um, um, and I can say it's uh, it's run by uh, um, American Society for Microbiology. And I'll also send you the link to that. And so people can check that out and uh, potentially attend in person. Um, it, it's a really good lineup this year. But of course, I am a bit biased because I'm the chair of the organizing committee. <laughs> uh, but it should be really it should be really good. Okay, yeah, definitely please do and and for the listeners, you know, I'll also put that on the show notes. That way you can look it over and then if it interests you, if you want to sign up or get more information, you can go ahead and do so. Um, you know, I could definitely I could listen to both of you talk for hours and, and this has been great. Is, is there anything else that you want to add? Uh, there's probably a lot, but for the sake of your listeners, not turning us off, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just say, 
just uh, you know, definitely check out the links that uh, you know Ben is going to provide if you're interested in either of those conferences. Um, you know, certainly go. Um, the science is about communication. Science is about experimentation. Science is about you know learning. And so, one of the best ways to do that, I think, is by networking with other scientists and other people who are interested, and even reaching out. Uh, to medical laboratory personnel and other folks, you know, other stakeholders, you know, we're, we're all on the same team here. And so we need to network, we need to get to know each other, we need to, you know, work with each other. And one thing that I would love to see is more interactions between public health laboratories, diagnostic, you know, clinical laboratories, and even academic laboratories working together to build capacity to deal with future you know, viral outbreaks and, you know, not even just viruses, but bacteria, fungi, parasites, um, prions, so on and so forth. And so, um, yeah, I, I mean, uh, that's, that's totally necessary if we want to stay ahead of these things. Um, and so, yeah, with that, I'll get off my soapbox and leave it up to Dr. Pinsky. <laughs> I I've already been on my soapbox. So, uh, um, I agree with uh, all, all that you just said. And, uh, you know, virology is a really interesting field. There's so much um, that there's so much to learn and there's so much impact we can have on um, humanity and the and the world itself. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed talking to both of you. And uh, yeah, check out those links. And if you want to um, attend any of those, I encourage you. And certainly, uh, Ryan and I are are available and easy to find if there are specific questions that folks have. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't mind answering emails and other things. Um, you know, ben and I, the last thing that I'll say, we're in the process of planning um, an expedition to Zimbabwe to do some emerging virus surveillance uh, for a, another arena virus called Lujo virus. Um, and so maybe if, you know, whenever we're able to get that done, we'll send you some pictures you can post on, you know, <laughs> on, on your social media. Release. Oh yeah. That would be awesome. Probably sometime next spring. I think that's, that's the plan, but, um, yeah, um, we're, we're looking to do, uh, our own little surveillance project on that particular virus, but, um, yeah, that should be really fun. Yeah, I will. I will love to hear about it. So, if, yeah, if you if you're okay with, um, you know, going come doing an episode about it where you can talk about, uh, yeah, yeah, we can talk about our visit and the, what we found. That would be a lot of fun. Yeah, that will, that will be great. Um, so definitely, you know, like like you have said, you know, um, communication and you know networking and it's such a now it's such a great era where you know, we can be so connected and, you know, with social media. And so it's just, yeah, that's how I met, you know, I have met people and you can see publications and reach out to people and, you know, pretty much in everyone in this field, you know, most people have met, you know, they're very friendly, very reachable, like both of you are, and they just want to talk about what you do. And, you know, you want to, like I say, you know, get in your soapbox and talk and share your information and then, and I love that, you know, I love the passion and the work that you're doing. You know, it's just, it's, and I said this before in other episodes, but it's, it is great when you see people, right, that they use their knowledge, their education and their work and just for, you know, make this feel better. So I appreciate what both of you are doing and thank you, you know, for taking the time and, and, and coming into Let's Talk Micro. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And right back at you, my friend. I mean, uh, Ben and I are big fans of yours as well. You're doing something that Ben and I haven't been able to do, which is, you know, have this successful podcast of bringing on all these thought leaders and experts and uh, so on and so forth. You're getting the information out there. And you yourself are also a very talented microbiologist. Um, so it's, you know, that's the, the pleasure is all on this side of the table, I think. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And that, my audience, was the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed the conclusion of that great talk about viruses with Dr. Relich and Dr. Pinsky. As always, I enjoy sharing this information with you. So please, continue bringing that passion to what you do. It's so important. You do such great work. And stay tuned. Great episodes coming your way. As always, thank you for the support. So, stay motivated. Stay safe. And of course, continue talking micro. Until the next time, bye.